You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. and welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. This week, we're focusing on the issue of parking minimums, which will culminate in our annual Black Friday parking event this Friday. We'd love for you to participate. You can find more information about that at strongtowns.org slash Black Friday Parking. Today, I have with me guest Kyle Smith to talk more about the issue of parking minimums. Kyle is an independent urban planning consultant in transportation, land use, and housing. He recently served as executive director of the Andersonville Chamber of Commerce in Chicago, and he also worked for the Center of Neighborhood Technology, where he wrote a report called Stalled Out, How Empty Parking Spaces Diminish Neighborhood Affordability. So Kyle, welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. Thank you. So let's jump right into talking about this report. First, I'm curious to hear... Uh, how you got involved in this project and why there was an impetus to write this report in the first place. You know, it's really interesting. I think it's the intersection of two different things that were going on at the same time. So here at Chicago, uh, the city of Chicago in 2013 and later in 2015 uh, passed an ordinance called a Transit-Oriented Development Ordinance, which sought to encourage more development and more multifamily housing in our city by reducing some of the barriers to develop it, um, including parking minimums. However, we noticed that almost every time a TOD project was being proposed, and this was in 2014, 2015, it was running up against intense community skepticism that that building needed less than one parking spot for every unit. So um, we really wanted to dig into it uh, to encourage more projects and um, have a piece to educate the community. At the same time, CNT, which has been looking at issues like this for 35 years, uh, was observing in some other regions, uh, San Francisco, King County, Washington, and Washington, D.C., that in the middle of the night, um, off-street parking spots parking lots, parking garages, etc. were about one-third empty. We just really wanted to ask, are we building too much parking here, too? So we took a lot of different angles of this report. Um, we interviewed developers, both of market rate and affordable housing, and really asked them what impact building empty parking spots have on their development. We reviewed the literature around the country um, by Donald Shoup and all kinds of other folks. Uh, and then we went into the buildings ourselves. And... Uh, we found that while the perception around Chicago is that we have too little uh, off-street parking, uh, we found the opposite. Apartment buildings have too much. So I was interested in the methodology of this report because it sounded like the way that you found that information was by going in like the middle of the night to uh, see how much parking was actually occupied. Is that Was that the case? Were you involved in that or was that like some other researchers. No, that was us. Um, A team of field workers, including myself, went into back lots and garages at 4 a.m. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, 4 a.m., if you want to use the wonky term, is peak utilization time. Um, Or to put it in plain plain English, it's the time when most people who rent 
are likely to be asleep and in bed. So we went into parking garages, um, parking lots. We uh, had a large logistical effort to make all of this possible. We opened up garages with clickers. We worked with parking garage attendants. We really wanted an equitable uh, sample of buildings, including some weaker markets with um, higher crime uh, at, at night. And so we even had one of our field workers who was a, uh, a amateur wrestler uh, to... <laughs> to make sure that um, you know we could get the data safely. And we looked at all kinds of buildings that way. Strong markets, weak markets, little developments, big developments, buildings built uh, before World War II and the advent of parking ratios and buildings built more recently. So did you find that the same thing that was happening in the other cities where this was studied was true in Chicago? Was it about one-third underutilized? It was one-third underutilized. It was right around one-third. Um, just like those other regions, we found that uh, the supply of parking, essentially mandated through parking minimums, was exceeding demand. It was about one-third empty overall. And another thing we found is that, you know, that one-third number, while that was very, I think, surprising to those who circle around uh, Chicago looking for parking on street, um, it was not surprising to those two to developers. But what was really interesting, even though the, the, the gap was there, is that we found that the demand for parking really varied a lot, depending on the type of the development and the location of the building. So, for example, buildings near transit, including our uh, heavy rail system operated by the Chicago Transit Authority, but also our bus lines needed less parking three spots for every 10 units and buildings with studios and one bedrooms which house little households needed even less parking than that uh, and in a world where uh, the conventional wisdom has been one or two parking spots for per unit i think a lot of people found all of those things very surprising we know that there's too much parking based on this report what would you recommend that the building owners or developers of these properties do to like make better use of that space? Is there a way to convert that into housing or commercial space or would it be best to just like re rebuild the whole lot? Um, what would you guys suggest? I think I'll talk about new buildings first because our quickly advancing shared use mobility options and technologies have uh, really revolutionized what developments can do. So for example, um, there's a building in Chicago's Wicker Park neighborhood. The building is called 1611 West Division, uh, which also happens to be its, its address. It's right by one of our train lines, the Blue Line, as well as three high-frequency buses. It has zero dedicated parking spots, which in the city of Chicago in 2013, when this building was built, was unheard of, revolutionary. So how does it do it? A part of it is its location, of course. It's right near transit. It's in a neighborhood with many walkable amenities. However, the demand for parking that is there is mitigated by a number of solutions. So, for example, there are two car share vehicles um, that have dedicated spots at the building. Residents get a discount for the car share vehicles when they move in, and they use it. There's also a bike share vehicle there's also a bike share station, and our bike share in Chicago is known as Divi, right around the corner. Residents use that too. And then there are cheaper technologies. The 
lobby of this building has a tablet, essentially a big iPad that uh, tells residents when train and buses are coming using the CTA Time Tracker app. All of that's very new and very revolutionary. Um, and if you think about it, uh, it, you know, it costs a developer in our region over $35,000 to build a structured underground parking spot. So uh, to dedicate a two spots to car share vehicles and give a discount, much less a tablet, um, there's really no contest in construction or operating costs there. When it comes to existing buildings, I think that accessory dwelling unit uh, ordinances are an interesting place to look. Here in Chicago, along the back alleys uh, on many of our lots are what we call coach houses. They're buildings and homes on the rear of the lots. And historically, before the 1930s, these were built by developers or by the owners of the property to get a little more revenue out of the lot and, by the way, provided very affordable housing. That system, you know, which created a lot of housing units in the city of Chicago for, uh, for decades, is now heavily restricted by the zoning code. And that's true in a lot of U.S. cities. I think that's a good way of incentivizing homeowners to to look at this. And then I think there's a really important need to look at affordable housing too. You know, parking is a big barrier to building affordable housing in so-called community areas, which tend to have great transit access because um, of two things, you know, the cost of the land, but also the sources of funding, which have cost caps in them, which means that every dollar spent on housing cars is raising the total price of the project and making it less feasible. Um, and I think, I think there, one of the most interesting solutions, which has been tried in San Jose and you know, is giving new recognition to the Chicago region, is bundling transit passes into rent. If you think about it, you know, the cost of a cost of a transit pass, especially when bought in bulk, um, is a lot, lot cheaper than the cost of even one amortized parking spot. And there, there's an affordable housing developer in San Jose that has tried this. Um, they're able to just roll the whole thing into the operating budget of their building, which is a big deal in affordable housing, um, bring down the capital costs, and it, it really reduces their need for parking for their tenants. That is one solution that we need to be looking at more throughout the country. I want to go back to the conversation on affordable housing. There was a quote in this report that you said, in Cook County, Illinois, one third of renters do not own a car. And among renters older than 65, more than half do not own a vehicle. So when we're talking about the limits on affordable housing, it's even more absurd to have these parking requirements for, you know, senior housing or low income housing when those groups of people are even less likely to own cars. I mean, that's yeah, I thought that was a very prescient point to make in this report. No, that's absolutely right. You know, I would add to that, too, that one out of every two renters in um, Cook County, which is a county of five million people, is now rent burdened. Um, one out of two renters here pays more than 30 percent of their income um, on rent. So you put those numbers together and these these regulations, which have been in place forever on these zoning standards, they don't really make a lot of sense. So if someone was going to build a new apartment building, what kinds of things would you suggest based on the findings of your report? 
Um, what kinds of things would you suggest that they do in terms of planning for parking? Like, would you just say, don't build any parking or do a largely reduced amount of parking or bike parking? Or yeah, how would you recommend they go about that? So for developers, what I would recommend, I mean, I would recommend scaling back the level of parking depending on the location of the building. Um, buildings near transit tend to need less parking. Buildings with smaller units tend to need less parking. Buildings in walkable neighborhoods near grocery stores and parks and schools tend to need less parking. But I'll observe that a lot of developers that I've talked to already know that. And more often than not, an increased number of spots will be put into a development to ensure that development's approval, either with a elected officials, a zoning board, or uh, community members. And so I think that the real recommendation um, shouldn't fall on the developers. It's pretty well known in the development community that parking is really expensive. It's not hard to see. The real skepticism, I think, comes at the community level. Here in Chicago, for example, my neighborhood in Edgewater one can circle around for 20, 25 minutes looking for a parking spot. Um, an on-street spot? An on-street spot. Um, yeah. I and uh, some of our field researchers walked in back lots and back garages. They're third empty. There's plenty of parking in Chicago's Edgewater neighborhood. It's just that it's all privatized and off-street. So that's the kind of thing that requires a lot of care um, in educating both uh, uh, elected officials and and community members, I think that I think that it's critically important to seeing these kinds of projects su succeed. I was really interested in the strategies that you are, have highlighted at the end of the report, both municipal strategies and the development strategies. Are there any that you want to highlight, like the inclusionary zoning and? you know, sharing parking lots and things like that. These are all creative ideas. There's a lot of ideas out there. I think the most important thing that we need to see is both flexibility and certainty in our zoning rules. Zoning standards set a strong signal to developers what a community values and what a community will accept. I think it's critically important more than anything else, more than any specific strategy, that zoning codes and standards have elements of flexibility and certainty in them. Flexibility in that uh, this research installed out and other research that inspires it really shows that um, one size doesn't fit, fit all when it comes to parking minimums. It really depends on where the building is located. You know, buildings near transit and walkable neighborhoods uh, with small units tend to need less. Buildings in other neighborhoods might need more. Um, it's not a standard that applies to the same land use classification everywhere that we've grown so accustomed to in, in Euclidean zoning. Um, and there are communities that have done that. Chicago's done it. Evanston, Illinois, uh, just to the north of Chicago, have done it. And that's a good thing. However, I think developers also need certainty that the rules are going to hold. Minimums need to be reduced as of right. And I think that's a really important point to make because too often um, new development, especially mixed-use development or other kinds of infill projects, are 
approved on a one-off uh, planned unit development basis. And that means that you know, the specifications of the project, including the exact number of spaces um, and you know, many other different elements of the project, go through a, a community meeting process. And that's great for local democracy. But it also adds risk and timeline uh, to a particular development project and in all likelihood um, dissuades developers from building infill, you know, or these or projects with fewer parking spots, except for the most affluent communities where um, the return on the project really makes it worth it. You know, if I can talk a little bit more about certainty, what I think that means is not indiscriminately lowering parking minimums, but making sure that elected officials and other stakeholders who really want to encourage more infill development in their community uh, have talked about issues like parking uh, before a developer a development is proposed because in too many places we're locked in a cycle of very long community conversations on each building one at a time which uh, just makes it very hard to build good smart low parking development um, in more moderate income communities. What do you think about parking maximums? Do you think that that's a valuable strategy or should we focus on just getting rid of minimums and letting independent developers make these decisions for themselves? I'm skeptical about maximums. One of the key findings and messages from this report is that there's no one size fits all um, parking parking amount. It really varies a lot on the element uh, elements of the building and its location and its proximity to transit and so forth. I, I do think that there's a, an argument there for getting rid of minimums and letting the market decide. Um, just in, in talking with developers, I found that they have a pretty good sense of the amount of parking that their project is going to need. Let's be honest, if a multifamily building is built and there's no parking available and residents of the building really need parking to get around, they're going to have trouble renting out those units. They tend to have a pretty good sense of how much parking they need. I think that's a better approach. One thing that was mentioned in this report was the right size parking calculator that was developed in King County in Washington. Do you have any familiarity with that? And is that a model that could be replicated elsewhere? Yeah, absolutely. Um, full disclosure is I didn't work on that calculator myself, although you know this report and in particular its research methodology was inspired by it. You know, I think the calculator, the calculator does exactly every, everything that we've just talked about. You know, it really looks at the components of a location and, and the components of a building and you know, puts the pieces together for the, the right size of parking at that location. I think we're in an inter interesting time. You know, for so long, the way we've thought about parking minimums, as well as zoning standards and classifications in general um, you know is in a non-locational way um, using manuals like the ITE manual but now you know in a time of growing access to data we have the ability to uh, model 
parking demand uh, in a locational way. And I think that, you know, that kind of approach, which is the approach of the right size parking calculator in King County is absolutely replicable in other places. So do you see the tide turning across the country with regards to parking minimums? I mean, I'm like in this work, so I'm, I'm always looking for stories about parking minimums decreasing and things. But um, do you think that that's a national trend that you witness as well? Among planners and developers, absolutely, because all of the ingredients are there. You know, the cost of construction is up. The cost of land is up. It's getting becoming harder to do infill development in all of them, but the most affluent communities. Uh, reducing wasting wasted parking is an obvious place to start. And I think that, you know, planners in cities and suburbs and not just central cities are recognizing that in the Chicago region and nationally. Um, and I, I think that's reflected in uh, the literature. Among communities, I think so. Um, but I want to make another point about community education. I think that there's a tide turning among planners and those who study this in depth. I think ele elected officials and high-level high staff in some municipalities are afraid of community opposition. And let's be honest, parking is a very emotional issue in, um, in most neighborhoods, especially when parking is, is scarce. This is a big, big shift um, from decades of land use planning. And, you know, whether or, not the, whether or not it was a smart idea, parking minimums have been a part of, um, you know, most municipal zoning codes for, for a long, long time and part of one fits, size fits all single use zoning. So, um, it's really worth pointing out that there's lots of entrenched skepticism out there. Um, and I now, you know, my practice is really built around going to community meetings and talking about parking and talking about the shift that we're seeing in car ownership. You know, it's a difficult but needed conversation um, in some places. So I'll give you one example. Uh, last year, I spoke at a community meeting for a transit-oriented development with just a handful of parking sp spaces near a train station in Chicago's Lincoln Square neighborhood. Um, in that neighborhood, 28% of households under 35 uh, own no car. And that was actually up by, by also by 28% um, between 2000 and 2011. However, the folks who came to this meeting who were heavily engaged in the future of the neighborhood tend to profile older, well above 35, um, and homeowner. And those demographics tend to own more cars. And car ownership among those demographics hasn't really changed in 14 years. Um, so there's a lot of entrenched skepticism among the folks who tend to go to community meetings and be very engaged in their community. Um, and the car ownership, while it is dropping among some, some demographics, are tend to be heavily underrepresented uh, in neighborhood organizations and so forth. So I think while the sentiment is changing among planners and policymakers, you know, we all need to recognize that there's a great need to get out in our communities and talk about this repeatedly because that change in conventional wisdom um, is 
not necessarily there with the public at large. Have you come across any good strategies for swaying public opinion on this? Because you're certainly right that parking is, as you said, a very emotional issue that people will show up to meetings in droves to protest. What strategies have you encountered that are able to sway people? Data, data, data. I like to go up in meetings and note how many folks in the neighborhood already live without cars. It tends to be a surprising number sometimes, um, but then people think about it a little bit more and they're like, oh yeah, I guess that's true. And when you point out data like that, suddenly a building in the neighborhood with fewer parking spots, it seems less scary. You know, I think public meetings, community meetings, they can be emotional by nature. And it's it's always great to come with data and, and studies and evidence um, that this has worked a lot of other places, which it obviously has. You know, let those arguments carry the day. One more point is that in the absence, in the absence of data, it's emotional arguments that can dominate a neighborhood meeting, really any setting. You know, the key to talking about this, just like it is talking in a small group about anything or a large group about anything, is to use facts and evidence. And when you do, there are other folks in the audience who might not say a whole lot who will stand up and say, yeah, I agree with that. This is not um, this is not the end of the world. I think that those are all um, very good strategies to talking about this in the community setting. Is there anything else that you want to add or any other topics you want to cover before we close out for today? You know, one, one more thing that I think has made a, a difference in the conversation about parking, something that really surprises a lot of people is the opportunity cost of uh, empty parking spaces. Applying some of our, our research um, on the utilization of parking in a, in a typical building, um, if one were to apply that to a 100-unit building and assume that that building's parking was structured, the unneeded construction costs would add up to uh, over $800,000. That surprises a lot of people. I think for those of us that work in planning and development, we know that parking can be expensive to build, but there's a lot of folks out there who don't know how expensive it is. And when you start adding up the costs of parking spaces sitting empty in the middle of the night, um, it enters the hundreds of thousands of dollars and people um, really start to pay attention. Well, Kyle Smith, thank you for being on the Strong Towns podcast. I invite our listeners to definitely check out that Center for Neighborhood Technologies report stalled out, especially the municipal and development strategies and examples at the end. I found those to be really helpful. So, Kyle, thank you so much and uh, really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. It was my pleasure. We need your help. If you think the Strong Towns message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. Drastic times require what? Drastic measures, yes! Who said that? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh!
I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah. 